0: You're all very welcome to tonight's forum event. My name is Beth Hannan. I'm the Associate Director of the Forum, and we're a non-profit organisation. We get philosophers and other thinkers to come out from their ivory towers and discuss their ideas in the public so that you can interrogate them and find out what they're up to. Uh, we're able to do this because of the support we get, first of all, from the LSE, and also from our individual donors. who do a fantastic job of helping us Put on events like this. If you'd like to help, you can find our Just Giving page uh, linked to on our web page. If you go to our web page, you'll also find podcasts of all of our previous events, as well as essays from uh, philosophers and other thinkers on all sorts of topics. Uh, just a couple of very tedious housekeeping matters. If you wouldn't mind turning off the volume on your phone, that will be much appreciated. You don't need to turn off your phone. In fact, please if you want to tweet along with us our hashtag is LSEFEP um, and this is being recorded for a podcast so uh, if you wouldn't mind waiting for the microphone to find you if you ask a question just so your voice is picked up for the recording and also so everyone in the room can hear your question too uh, I think that's it so I'll, I'll hand over to our chair for our unfortunately very timely discussion about ethics and public discussion
1: uh, thank you, Beth, and welcome to this forum event on Reason and Rhetoric. My name's Peter Dennis. I teach in the Philosophy Department here uh, at LSE. Um, I'd like to start by just sort of pointing out a curious fact about our democratic society. If there is some legal decision that needs to be made, if we've got to apportion criminal responsibility we select a small group of eligible persons. We require them to sit down and carefully deliberate and hear evidence, perhaps over a long period of weeks and months. And if someone had read about it in the paper and they wanted to be involved in the discussion or to take a vote and participate in the voting, we would say, well, you know, you can't participate, you haven't been involved in the deliberation and you haven't heard the evidence. Whereas when it comes to a political issue... um, who do we want to run our country, Uh, do we want to leave the European Union, as we've just had this uh, debate about. Uh, Everybody is invited to participate. Um, If you've read something in the newspaper, you can uh, vote and weigh in. Um, And there's no requirement to listen to the evidence um, or weigh arguments. Due process consists in something called public discussion. So it's right that we ask the question, what is public discussion? Are there any standards governing public discussion? And do we always live up to them? So with us to discuss these questions, we have Katerina Dulit-Nuaves, who's assistant professor at the uh, University of Groningen. We've got Joe Phillips, who's a journalist and former spin doctor. And we've got William Althwaite, uh, who's Emeritus Professor of Sociology at Newcastle University. We also may have, uh, coming late, John Crace, uh, who's been called away on urgent government business, but may come in at any moment. He's a journalist and parliamentary sketch writer, so don't be surprised if you see uh, a fifth member of our panel. Um, So let's start um, our discussion by asking Katerina, um, what's public discussion
2: for? All
3: right. So as the philosopher among uh, the speakers here today, I feel that I have no option other than to start with the old cliche of Athenian democracy, right? So that's a thing that philosophers often do. They go back to the Greeks. And in fact, I do this also in my research on mathematical proofs, so I, I work on different topics, and that's also what I do. So let's think about Athenian democracy again, right? So presumably public discussions uh, took place in the agora, in the situation, in the as if we are to believe the reports, and uh, all citizens were could participate in these debates. But of course, it's important to keep in mind that what counted as a citizen back then was a very restricted class of people. So, uh, slaves were excluded, women were excluded. So it's it wasn't as inclusive as you might think it was, right? If you just take it's kind of the idea of democracy, uh, you know, uh, as you might have uh, understood from say your history books but so these people got these citizens these men they got together and they presumably they discussed matters pertaining to city governance and presumably everyone everybody's opinions matter right so they got together to exchange their views and so everybody had a voice of this group of people and so this entailed a collective responsibility for the functioning of the city, right? So something you could describe as collective, general accountability, just as you were describing in a way. And so this, and this seems to, at least still now, this seems to speak to our ideals of egalitarian, just societies, right? In the sense that everybody's opinions, at least among these people who counted as citizens, all of these people, their opinions mattered. And if, insofar as all of these opinions were represented and were discussed in the marketplace of ideas, presumably the decisions they would reach would be fair and would be you know taking into account everybody's interests right so that would be the ideal situation. So that will be kind of like on the moral level. But also there is an epistemic component to public discussion and disagreement that I think is important to point out. And the thought is that, again, in this marketplace of ideas, when positions are confronted with one another and are scrutinized for the extent to which they're supported by evidence and by compelling arguments, right? So they're really kind of put against they're compared to one to the other. So the idea is that the better ideas, the better proposals will prevail right because you're comparing these different ideas and so and, and checking to what extent they seem compelling they seem justified and so the, you can understand better right the better ideas will prevail in a very pragmatic way so what's the you know what's the better way to i don't know build a, build a bridge or whatever or go to war usually the athenians were had endless discussions whether they should go to war or not with sparta or some other city but there's also this idea of approximating the truth right so this purely epistemic dimension of if you deliberate together if different positions are represented and they're confronted with one another you actually get closer to the truth of the matter in question so, uh, and this, by the way, this idea of uh, uh, the truth conduciveness, that's a technical term in philosophy, the truth conduciveness of deliberation, of discussion, uh, it matters also for a contexts outside political contexts, right? So people talk about this also with respect to science, right? So if you have dif- different scientists dis- discussing, defending different positions, this is more likely to make us come closer to the truth because these different positions are being, uh, you know, are uh, in in touch with each other. So, but the presupposition here is that all those participating in these public discussions, both in political contexts and in non-political contexts, say, in science, are maximally well-meaning and rational individuals, whatever that means, rational individuals. That's one of the things that philosophers still haven't really figured out. Still discussing that. So, but that's the idea that we're all, you know, super well-meaning people who really want the best for our city. We're not motivated by our own petty interests or, or emotions or whatever. And so, if we are exposed, we have—I have a particular position, but if somebody else has a different position and has better arguments for their position than my arguments, I will naturally switch to their position. That's the thought, at least. And of course, right, because his position is better supported by arguments and by evidence than mine. But the question is, of course, whether we really are these maximally well-meaning and rational individuals. And that seems to be one of the, the issues that we'll be discussing uh, in, the, you know, in the next hour and a half.
1: Okay, great. So if I've understood you correctly, public discussion is at least partly to get at the truth. That's why we have public discussion. People can come with different evidence and present different arguments, and in that, through that process, we're more likely to get at the truth. I mean, in yeah, ideal circumstances. In an ideal circumstance, <laughs> right? Well, that's maybe a good place to bring in you, Joe. We've heard the ideal circumstance yeah. <laughs> from the philosopher. does that match up with the reality
4: well you didn't mention journalists did you and see that's where it all goes horribly wrong and they didn't have twitter (laughs) in. so let's just cast our mind back I was invited onto this panel in June um, before the referendum before the idea My
5: microphone's not picking you up very well
4: I beg your pardon your microphone oh ok let me move closer is that better can you hear me now can you hear me at the back marvellous good so, in early June, when you invited me, <laughs> um, we hadn't had the referendum. The idea of Brexit seemed utterly inconceivable. To whom? To most of the people here who I gather took part in the debate um, and voted very strongly in favour of Remain. But the idea seemed inconceivable to us, the bien pensants, the commentariat. And we are part of that, whether we like it or not. Project Fear was revved up and surely only Daily Express readers who were locked in the paper's nostalgic embrace and the Farage faithful really thought that leaving the EU was possible because anyone else is either naive, bigoted, racist or plain bonkers. At least that was the general tenor of the debate which I think goes back to Katerina's point because in our world in June, and subsequently, the views, concerns, and democratic power of millions of people were simply dismissed by the urbane, the sophisticated metropolitan voices who thought they knew better, understood more, and were, well, right. And you could ask, if those concerns and views had been adequately addressed by the press, the media, and politicians, the result of the referendum might have been very different. Lots of people said they wanted to leave the EU or they voted to leave the EU because they wanted to make their voice heard but they didn't think it would make a difference they didn't believe their vote would count and yet they bothered to make a protest and that in itself particularly for those of us who care about public engagement is a conundrum and it's one that eternally exercises campaigners, political parties editors and journalists how do you engage wider society in the issues of our time and why should you For politicians, the answer is easy. They want to win, to beat their opponents. For campaigners, they want your money or your voice to add to the clamour for change, to raise awareness, to make the call for something must be done irresistible to those with the power to do that something. But for journalists, it's arguably more complex. Fundamentally, journalism should be about presenting the facts and reporting them in a way that is accessible, informative and relevant, to serve the community by providing people with the information they need to participate in democratic civic affairs. Maybe journalism is is the agora of our day. And therein lies part of the problem, gathering, dissecting or digesting more information, gaining a greater understanding of big or important issues, requires effort by journalists and by their audiences. It's Peter's point about juries. We expect them to consider thoughtfully and carefully the evidence put before them. But for media organizations with limited resources, which require money, in the commercial media sector that means advertising. Advertisers want the biggest audience, so they want what sells to viewers and readers. And that's meant huge pressure to turn what many regard as dull and difficult – politics, foreign affairs, finance, science and medicine – into easily digestible, bite-sized chunks of entertainment rather than information. The demise of local newspapers, the rise of citizen journalism, which in my view is a tautology – The culling of specialist reporters who knew and understood their subject and could explain its complexities, be that an industrial dispute or a medical treatment, have all contributed to a wider ignorance, despite the mass of information that is available to all of us. And out of that ignorance breeds fear, and that combination becomes the parents of abuse. Who could have picked a better time to do this debate, this discussion, than not only just after the referendum and all that but just hours after Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. I am personally, and I suspect many of you, particularly women in this audience, are sick and tired of the, it was a harmless bit of banter. The alpha males and handbags at dawn, referring to the same two UKIP people, which seems a very, very odd combination. The locker room talk... (laughs) The innumerable offensive comments, the ill-judged tweet, the violent, threatening abuse of women MPs and others in public life. This morning I heard the MP, the Labour MP Jess Phillips, talking about 600 rape threats in one day. 600 rape threats. All online. People who are hiding behind their often anonymous tweets because they want to make a point, but they don't think it'll do any harm. So it's just a game. It's a game to them, but how much blame should the media take for encouraging, albeit unwittingly, that game? Politics is portrayed as a game, and part of that is to make it more appealing, sexier, more accessible. I've spent my life working with commissioning (coughs) editors in broadcasting who think making political TV shows more like X Factor will increase the audience. But turning politics into entertainment makes trivia that amuse or titillate more important than the real serious issues we should all be concerned with. It's not a game. It has consequences for all of us. So we should take it seriously, which does require considerably more effort than 140 characters of outrage, offence or abuse. I would refer some of you to Lindsay Tanner, who is an Australian politician who wrote a brilliant book called Sideshow, Dumbing Down Democracy, and argues that politics has been prostituted to meet the needs of the media. Debate and discussion has degenerated into a form of entertainment with the complicity of politicians, their spin doctors and advisers. And yes, and as a former spin doctor and advisor, I'm guilty as charged. But the insatiable appetite of the media, not just mainstream 24-7 news, but blogs and tweets mean that politicians increasingly feel under pressure to be seen to be doing something, even if that's something, is a total waste of time, or a downright untruth. Get a celebrity endorsement, create a Twitter storm, use the mass ranks of public relations, ad agencies and creatives, behaviour change experts and focus groups, create a buzz. Don't think, just be busy. You know, how do we tackle Boko Haram? I know, let's have a Twitter campaign. Well, as far as I know, most of those girls who were kidnapped are still in captivity, and I don't think Boko Haram has really cared very much about the Twitter storm. An odd way to wield power to affect change and policy through being seen to be doing something based on perhaps an untruth. My colleague, my journalistic colleagues, Peter Oborne, Nick Cohen, and Nick Davis, have examined this Faustian pack between press and politics, and written very elegantly about it. And it is the nature of that tacit agreement that is the ethical conversation about engagement in public debate. If you believe, as Nick Davis does, and he wrote in Flat Earth News, I was forced to admit, in a corrupted profession, the business of truth had been slowly subverted by the mass production of ignorance. We have to take some blame for that as well. Complacency, laziness, disengagement and willful willful ignorance play their part. And isn't it ironic that opinion formers seem to be in two camps today. Those who refuse point blank to listen and engage with and argue with people whose views they find offensive or upsetting. And those who cheerfully engage in the sort of abuse, intimidation and bullying online without any care for the consequences. Ethical public discourse works both ways. Should speakers veer from the truth if it doesn't support their argument? Should listeners simply refuse to listen to a speaker with whom they fundamentally disagree, thus allowing untruths or insufficient challenges to rest? We need to raise the argument, not our voices.
1: Thank you, Joe. Well, um, William, you've studied these things from a sociological, but also I think it's fair to say philosophical uh, point of view. How would you think about this question? What is public discussion for? Well, I mean, you've heard
6: two sides, and I, I guess I, I want to produce the kind of synthesis which says, well, you know, both things can happen. But I, I do very much believe that um, discussion is good in itself, uh, that it's good to talk, uh, but I think one has to recognize that, or although under ideal circumstances, the discussion may produce a search for, tr- you know, may produce tr- truth. Uh, it is possible for it to spiral down, downwards, in just the way that Joe described. What determines what happens to this? Um, I mean, I think the online uh, discussion and that kind of notion that people writing online will engage in the kind of rudeness which would be unthinkable in not just in this forum but in most kind of face-to-face forums. Um, that this is something new and it's somehow developed in a bizarre kind of way with with the internet. I mean, I, I'm so old that I can remember when um, the internet in its early stages, um, people would um, send an email to their friends saying, you know, you might be interested in this book that I've published and a huge storm of abuse would descend on them because they were advertising something on the internet they were engaging in a commercial activity, publicizing their book, uh, with a view to maximizing its sales. And this, you know, <laughs> this now seems bizarre, sort of ancient history, and it's not actually that, that long ago. So I think the, the, con- the technical conditions of communication uh, are very important. Um, face-to-face communication, as in the Agora, is clearly important, Uh, and under ideal circumstances uh, modern forms of media do provide the kind of equivalent of that, you know, you can Skype with people you can have uh, televised discussions you can have somebody who's not physically present here present on a screen in another continent and so forth so there's there's a possibility of of reactivating the face-to-face dimension and dynamic Uh, on the other hand... um, you know the, the, the fireside chat by the president may be completely factitious. Uh, the cosiness of the um, prime minister or president talking to the nation is something slightly suspect because you know it's not actually a fireside chat; it's uh, a televised spectacle. So I think you know. Both, both things are happening at the same time um, and we need to just recognise those two. But isn't
4: it that spectacle that is part of the problem? I mean, yeah. if any of us were listening to the news um, you know, in the last 24 hours since the tape appeared of Donald Trump admittedly 11 years ago saying deeply offensive things, the build-up to last night's debate was in terms of you know, an American football game or, or an FA Cup final. Mm-hmm. And actually, it disappointed by all accounts. Mm-hmm. So there is that part of building up a spectacle, which isn't the same as engaging people in political process, in public debate, in thoughtfulness.
3: And I just wanted to add something to this. I mean, so we were talking about the, the, the Athenian as a positive model, but back then already, Plato was very critical of democracy, very much along the lines of what you've been pointing out. So he said, uh, well, uh, public discussion, politicians and narrators will always say what the public wants to hear. Just as you were saying, politics becomes a matter of entertainment. He compared... A political discourse in this sense, to uh, poetry, which he thought was a bad thing, right? So just to be clear, he called it all flattery. This is flattery because you tell people what they want to hear so that they vote for you. So this worry about, you know, the, the spectacle dimension of politi- politics and of public debate wasn't really very much, you know, a topic Absolutely. in ancient Greece. So, I mean, it's not new. What's new is perhaps the ways the the technologies that are involved in the dissemination of this information, as you were pointing out. But the worry in and of itself is as old as democracy itself.
4: But what's interesting, I think, is that since the, um, the last election, um, when we had the debates, which was the first time um, that you actually had people properly engaged and even though some of us were slightly more sceptical about it than others, those of us who work in the media, work in broadcasting um, you know, thought, oh this isn't going to work to hear people on buses and trains afterwards talking about it and that was a real genuine engagement, it didn't work quite so well last time round, but it did work, you know, it didn't descend into Coriolanus, it wasn't quite so much of people saying what they thought people wanted to hear. And it did seem something new and different.
6: Good. I think a positive example would be the European Commission um, presidency and the, the notion that the Parliament would have a role in that. And that did produce hustings. I don't know if people remember them, summer of 2014. But um, Juncker and the other candidates were presenting themselves very much like uh, they would in a, in a national election. I think that was something genuinely new in European politics, and hopefully something that will survive with or without the not UK. No, just technocrats.
3: No, that's, that's right. right.
1: Yeah. Well, this is a good point then to bring in uh, John Crace. Uh, welcome. Uh, I've introduced <laughs> oh, you uh, before, before you came, uh, so people know who you are. <laughs> and we've been discussing uh, this question of what is public discussion for? Is it purpose to get to the truth? Is it just to make people feel included? How would you think about that question?
5: Um, I would unhelpfully answer it with a negative by saying what it isn't. And what it isn't is what I've just been sitting through for about the last hour. Um... (laughs) Uh, because uh, David Davis has been giving a statement on Brexit in the, the form of not giving a running commentary on Brexit is the form, has become the new kind of mantra and it's, it's not really working and to hear the kind of obfuscation and untruths just sort of and the ability of, sort of Parliament to obfuscate the truth um, you know, perfectly constitutionally um, and I kind of think that's it and I think you know that is why so many people are turned off from debate and why convert I mean we're sort of stuck between I think we're stuck between a rock and a hard place in some ways because uh, undoubtedly it's that kind of stultifying exchange that has driven so many people to sort of to, to sort of be anti-politics and it's sort of the essence of many people who are now kind of part of the Jeremy Corbyn's um, sort of fan base if you like but I also kind of believe that um, it's ultimately a kind of futile gesture in a way because I don't think that Jeremy Corbyn is electable and unless you're going to kind of advocate the complete overthrow of parliamentary democracy which I wouldn't then (laughs) I'd be out of a job then I think but then, you know, I mean, for me, it's, you know, as a sort of uh, uh, part of the sort of left, I would, uh, you know, I kind of see Labour's job as to get re-elected as a government and to sort of uh, create change that way. And I kind of, I worry that uh, Labour has sort of drifted sort of so far up its sort of own inner conflicts that it is now in-elect- unelectable. Great. Well,
1: let's bring in the audience here, because we've heard a lot from the panel, some scepticism about uh, public discussion, uh, but also an ideal of what public discussion might be for. If you've got a question, please raise your hands. And I would say if you can keep your questions focused on this particular question, what's public discussion for, we're going to be talking in just a moment about whether we live up to those uh, standards uh, and, and goals. Uh, I can see a hand right at the back uh, in front of me. gentlemen in uh, suit and tie.
2: Hello, hi. Um, earlier, I think one of you made a point about well-meaning individuals being a premise of a functioning democracy with ethical public discourse. Um, and I'd like to point it to the panel that it's less about well-meaning people and more about the institutions in which they work. So you can have, I mean, the sort of a classic phrase amongst members of the public is that, oh, politicians, uh, they start off well, they mean well, and they go into Parliament and they become corrupted. And I think even though that's sort of a a folk tale, there's a hell of a lot to that. And it's it's up to us to recognise the role that Parliament plays, the role that institutions play in shaping the motivations and incentives of the people who we put in charge to make the decisions on our behalf. It is the politicians, members of political parties who have the incentive to compete against each other and to, as Plato uh, observed millennia ago, to say what the people want to hear. They have that because they have the institutional incentives to do so. You change it. We're sort of teetering on, on realising what the answer is here. You've mentioned about the parallel or the, the distinction with the legal system. You've mentioned ancient, uh, mentioned ancient Greece. You've mentioned juries. I mean... They are different institutional ways of arriving at discussion which shape the discussion itself. It's still, still the same people, still politicians, but if you frame the discussion differently. That's a really
1: interesting comment. We're going to take a couple in quick succession. Um, who else had a, uh, something they would like to raise? Uh, hands up if you, if you do. Uh, yeah, there's a lady sort of down here in the, on, the, on my left.
7: Thank you. Uh, I just wanted to raise the issue that when we're addressing the question of what is public discussion, we are presupposing that there is an ability to discuss and that discussion actually takes place. I am from Colombia and I imagine you heard that last week we had a referendum and we voted against the peace agreement with a guerrilla group uh, of over 60 years. And the... um, the manager of the campaign uh, that was supporting voting against the agreement openly uh, manifested that the campaign was not about discussion or understanding of the agreement but rather about generating a feeling of indignation. So I just wanted to raise this issue of are we capable of discussing in modern societies and especially in societies that are engaged in conflict uh, over decades.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, and yes, we can take uh, this question here right next to... Yeah. Um,
8: hello. Um, in, in terms of the, the, the public sphere and our seeming addiction to sensationalism, I, I would like to ask the members of the panel what they think, uh, you know, w- what is a citizen to do if they don't want to eat bullshit, if you'll excuse me for being crass. Um, and as an American, uh, you know, It seems this will seem utterly inconceivable, but I believe that many Americans have actually voted for Trump because they are tired of rhetoric. They've they've chosen a different type of rhetoric. It's the common man's rhetoric, or at least the car salesman's rhetoric, as opposed to the politician's rhetoric, which is at least a little bit more enjoyable to listen to. And so, and so, and 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 so, you know, what are we to do? You know, we're we're treated like infants. You know, how can we break out of this?
1: Okay. Good. Well, I'll just allow the panel to comment freely on any of these points. There was the um, point about how institutions uh, corrupt people. There was a question about are we even capable of having a public discussion? Uh, and there was this idea of different kinds of uh, rhetoric. Who would like to jump in, Caterina?
3: So I just uh, so that's why I insisted so much on the you know the the premise for uh, public discussion and democracy on this. Ancient Greek model is the presupposition that humans, those participating, have some certain properties, and then there's the question whether we, as humans, don't really have these properties. So, about well, the, the case of Colombia, so it's clear that it's, it's you know it's appealing to emotional reactions. That And I mean, I don't want to uh, uh, endorse a crude dichotomy between reasons and emotions. That's just stupid. That's not the point. It's just to realize that, and I think this relates to all the questions that have been asked, that there's really this, uh, uh, you know, th- it's part of the story. We can't just say, well, people should be purely rational and when they act as political agents. That's just not going to happen. And given that... I think, and that relates, I think, to the first question. That's exactly why institutions may play the role of offering some sort of counterbalance when things risk of running amiss due to these other dimensions of the human experience, which are not to be uh, reduced to this kind of argumentation that, theoretically only makes appeal to means-ends rationality, right? so emotions, or the thing about you know Trump really being, oh, people identifying with this, with this person, and that being such a strong motivation to vote for him, although what he says is really not very coherent. So.
1: <laughs> Thanks for that caveat. Yeah, <laughs> that's important. <laughs> uh,
3: but just to pick up on, on two points,
4: really, and I think they, they link together. Um, one about the institutions, which I think bears out what John was saying about Jeremy Corbyn but it also ties into what you were saying about this desire for realness this new buzzword authentic whatever that means mm-hmm. you know, and that's Nigel Farage, it's Donald Trump it's Jeremy Corbyn Jeremy Corbyn's membership or the membership of the Labour Party is about 330,000 which is terrific and it's really big and it's the biggest you know, growing political party in Europe and blah de blah blah the MPs Actually represent nine million people, and they are in an institution they also have a role within our unwritten constitution of being you know her majesty 's loyal opposition. They have a rule a role sorry in a working and functioning democracy to do that whether they 're going to do it and whether they are prepared to actually split tribally, who knows or whether they 'll just go up their own in a conflict I think you call <laughs> it um, but the other point about this indignation, which you mentioned in relation to the vote in, in Colombia. It's this sense of indignation that gives rise to people like Donald Trump and Nigel Farage, and to a certain extent, Jeremy Corbyn. Because it's this sense of, we are not listened to. And that's why when I open, my opening comments are about, you know, the bien-pensant, the commentariat, the metropolitan, the elite. There's a whole load of people who feel completely and utterly disenfranchised and unspoken to and however much we like to you know if you like lampoon the trumps and the farages the next version that comes along will be a little bit smarter a little bit more human and equally dangerous and probably more so but until we do something about that disconnect with people we really are heading i think in a very very dangerous direction
1: Okay, well, let's move our discussion on, because I'm conscious of time. Uh, I want to talk now about whether there are any standards of public discussion. I suppose that's quite a typical philosophical question to want to raise. There is this thing, public discussion, it's supposed to have some sort of purpose. So are there any particular norms or standards that it's supposed to live up to? Is there such a thing as a healthy public discussion when the thing works well? Or is there such a thing as an unhealthy Uh, public discussion when it doesn't go well and also involved with that are our recent public discussions living up to uh, those standards so William this is definitely something you've thought a lot about Uh, let's start off with you. Yes, yeah, so
6: very briefly, I mean, my answer to the first question is yes, and my answer to the second question is no. So there are, there are standards, and we have not lived up to them. Um, let me expand on that a little bit. Um, I mean, my two theoretical reference points, really, for thinking about rhetoric and uh, political discussion generally are um, a German sociologist and philosopher, Jürgen Habermas, and uh, uh, Pierre Bourdieu, a sociologist trained as a philosopher, um, Habermas has a very strong notion of public discussion growing up as a teenager in Nazi Germany, uh, being shocked at the revelations at the Nuremberg trials of what kind of society he'd been living in. Um, gives massive importance both to democracy and to communication. So his model is is very much that model of rational communication feeding into the political system. So our discussion as citizens feeds into formal political institutions and sort of spirals upwards to to larger and larger forums. Um, So that's his model of language, a rather kind of... um, A truth-seeking, quite serious sort of model of language. So, I mean, to put it nastily, it's a little bit like uh, the Catholic doctrine that the purpose of sex is for people who are married to each other to have children. Um, And obviously we do lots of other things with sex and with our speech, uh, apart from that. Um, The other other reference point, Pierre Belger published a book where the, the the original title of which was What Speaking Means. The English translation is slightly sort of watered down. But he's looking at the use of language very much in a context of um, playing a game, maximising your resources, using your resources to uh, increase your privilege, to increase your... your uh, as a form of kind of class positioning and uh, so forth. And that's something that he... Would say was, was, was observable in a whole lot of different cultures. And interestingly, as an example, um, some Hungarian dissidents pointed out that if they could use uh, a certain amount of official party language, if they were in a difficult situation, that might persuade the, uh, the cops to sort of back off because they would be <laughs> frightened of, uh, you know, maybe these people actually are leading party. Th- people who just look like scruffy intellectuals uh, so I mean that kind of use of language in a contextual um, strategic sense is what, what Bourdieu focuses on and I think again you need to think of both those dimensions of language use uh, in thinking about um, uh, political discussion um, and um, its conduct just on the, um, the theme of, of politicians and rhetoric um, Um, I mean, it's clear that we can respond to questions uh, by saying what we feel like saying, uh, what we believe, hopefully, as well. Um, If we were politicians representing different political parties, we'd be very concerned to position ourselves in relation to each other uh, to strike kind of alliances, relations of opposition. So what's sometimes called positioning theory Um, uses that kind of model. So, you know, once you're acting as a politician, you're going to be 2nd you know, thinking every time before you respond what's going to be the consequence of saying this kind of thing in this particular way. And that form of calculation, uh, I think... (coughs) is what people are suspicious of, and that's perhaps the appeal of somebody like Corbyn, who, uh, you know, whether or not he's electable, uh, let's not worry about that now, but uh, I think part of his appeal is that he responds to questions by saying what he wants to say, and, you know, not thinking, or not visibly thinking too much about the consequences and the, the, the spins... And not say
3: what I... people want to hear.
6: No, that's right, yeah. yeah. Um, so that, you know, I think... Um, And then, do recent public discussions, e.g., over Brexit, live up to them? Well, I mean, I've been at a session since uh, 2 o'clock this afternoon uh, on Brexit uh, in the the sociology department here with um, um, Craig Calhoun and other people. Um, And, you know, one of the things we were looking at was the, you know, this precisely this kind of downward spiral of the discussion which uh, I think began in a pretty problematic way and spiraled down into more and more kind of racist abusive uh, language um, political positioning uh, and so forth um, and you know I think Michael Duggan the European lawyer at uh, Liverpool put it very well that the, the Brexit discussion was really like one between evolutionary biologists and creationists <laughs> uh, with the BBC of course taking a, a studiedly neutral line between the two positions um, so I think that's my take on the Brexit discussion and, Good.
1: Um, thank you Well, John, you've already indicated that your answer to the second part of this question is probably no, that we haven't lived up to these standards of public discussion. Could I ask you to be a little bit philosophical and explain sort of what kind of (laughs) ideal standards uh, then we should we ought to impose
5: to kind of improve things? What standards do you think have been violated? Um, Well, I mean, the standard that's been violated is the standard of truth. Um, I think, is that we no longer really expect our politicians to tell the truth. I mean, it's no great surprise when they don't, and they are awarded sort of merit marks for their ability not to tell the truth in in some quarters. And I mean, I think Jeremy Corbyn is an interesting um, example here. Um, And, I mean, slightly taking it back to uh, the gentleman uh, from from the audience's point, um, in that the, the sort of position of leader has sort of changed him in some ways, because... I mean, he is, a, as, as a backbencher for 30 years, he was serially disloyal to his own leaders. He would vote against them on a matter of conscience, you know, whenever he felt like it. And that is the kind of thing that we applaud now as kind of country. But he is continually now making appeals to his party, his, his parliamentary Labour Party, his uh, 180 MPs or so, to be loyal to him. <laughs> um so he's so there is something uh, there is a hypocrisy in there and i think there is also a problem of um being too generalistic I mean one of Jeremy Corbyn's appeals I think is that he says things that very few people could actually disagree with you kind of think I'm against austerity it's very I mean you know it's sort of hard you know, to be kind of yeah I'm really for austerity <laughs> um, you know it takes a certain mindset to do that but he hasn't you know when you, when you actually look for the specifics of what you're going to do about it um, it's much less clear about where you're going. And in terms of uh, Brexit, I mean, it's often... We've, sort of we've now into a kind of post-truth politics where the truth doesn't matter anymore. I mean, it's arguable whether it ever did, yep. I
3: think. As for in Plato, politic- right. Yeah. <laughs> um,
5: I mean, I think that one of the things is that, A, we are uh, quite rightly... I mean we are much less deferential to our politicians these days we can hold them to account and we can also kind of pick up when they're lying quicker because with the internet you can kind of rebut and when you know you know with with the donald trump debate they have an instant sort of fact you know fact finder and so you know he's got something wrong he's and previously you could have maybe skirted through that and nobody would have noticed. Uh, It's like the sort of famous budget statements when um, you would only find out what was in the budget about ten days after it had been said because once you've gone through the sort of minutiae um, and sort of got through the spin. Um, And I think there is also a notion that people are disaffected with the debate and that in terms of post-truth things, people don't care. Um, I mean, with specific regards to Brexit, I'm not sure that anybody who voted leave really believed that 350 million quid a week would be given to the NHS. Um, I mean, it is a sort of patently ludicrous idea um, that it was ever going to happen. But they were quite happy to vote leave regardless. You know, that particular truth or untruth didn't matter. And I think that's kind of really murky waters, both for us as citizens and philosophically.
1: That's really interesting you mention this idea of truth, because on the one hand we are valuing our politicians displaying a certain truthfulness, a kind of sincerity or authenticity, and perhaps we care less about truth in a more kind of external or authentic sense. Joe, uh, sorry, um, yeah, Joe. How would you, excuse me, um, respond to this question of recent events?
4: I think we have to ask ourselves, what do we expect from politicians? Because John is right up to a point that we can hold them to account much more quickly, but also. Um, you know, you can see an instant opinion before somebody's, you know, there's probably somebody tweeting right now before we've even finished the sentence, and somebody oh, she's wrong, she's talking absolute twaddle and all the rest of it. So nobody's actually listening. They're not listening to the rest of the argument. They're not listening to what goes on in Parliament. You know, to go back to that question of institutions or good debates, which was your earlier point... Actually, if you listen to or read the reports of the, the um, select committees in Parliament, which I think have become incredibly valuable and do hold government to account and do hold public policy and business people to account, because it doesn't matter a damn whether you're the Prime Minister or Philip Green or the, the, you know, the Head of Human Resources at the BBC. You know, If Margaret Hodge wanted you there, um, you had to be there, and there was no getting away from it. So there is, there is stuff there... You have to say, do we? Do people like John and I give it the coverage it deserves? Or does it just become disappeared into the morass of stuff, which goes back to that gentleman's point about how do we stop eating bullshit? Well, the answer is people like us have to stop serving it, actually. Um, but you've got to say, I don't want this. I want to know more. You know, It's a two-way street. Um, so that thing about you know, we want our politicians to be truthful... Are we asking of them stuff that is honest and truthful ourselves, or are we simply saying, something must be done? Because the reality is, you know, if I'm a politician and I say to you, yes, John, you're absolutely right, something must be done, I'm going to have a look at this, but that doesn't mean I'm going to come back to you in five minutes, Mm -hmm. by which point, you know, you'll be tweeting, hey, it's ridiculous, not enough's being done. So, you know.
5: Yeah, I mean, I think it's. I mean, I think. I mean, I do think we need to be able to hold our politicians to a higher form of truthfulness account than we would necessarily hold ourselves, because they have actually put themselves in that position whereby, you know, that judgment should be placed on them. I think. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I would never want to be in that position myself, because I wouldn't be. I wouldn't feel comfortable with making the those judgments and making those compromises necessarily Katharina
3: yes so I do want to make I think again the philosopher's abstract point uh, which is well as I've already suggested this idea that there are uh, potential issues with public discourse and public debate is a very old idea but uh, so I would say I guess you know most people would agree that public discourse is essential for democracy and for all its flaws, we still take democracy to be our best bet when it comes to achieving a fair, just society. I I don't know if anyone would have to disagree with that, but but what is important for me as a philosopher to recognize, and not just me, there are a number of other philosophers who are also uh, asking themselves these questions, is that it's important to recognize that public discussion is very delicate, it's very fragile. It can go wrong very easily right so i take I, I mean i'm very much inspired by habermas but i think habermas, habermas is overly optimistic he seems to think that you know reason and people let at their own devices things will be just will will you know will work as we would like them to and i think that that's just too naive. It's too optimistic. And so I just wanted so to mention this concept of pathologies of public discourse, right? So this is a term that's now being floating around among philosophers. In fact, there will be a workshop on this in Copenhagen in December. And so just to, you know, to mention, to, to, uh, to indicate that this is a concern that philosophers are having. And that's really the idea of looking at the ways in which public discourse can derail And then, of course, the next step is to think about ways in which this could potentially be prevented, right? So that goes back to to these norms. But I think very much, I mean, it's very important that we realize that as of the essence of public discourse, it's very easy for things to derail. And so it's not just I think, you know, now it's particularly 2016 is particularly ugly in this respect. But I think in a sense it's not that new what's going on now. And I mean, problems with public discourse is just kind of Inevitable, and that's why it's important for us to think about the virtues and vices and the pathologies, and try to think of ways to counter these unwanted developments insofar as possible.
1: Good, thanks. Well, I want to, yeah, please. I carry
3: just
6: going to come back to John on the bus. I mean, it's an empirical question, obviously, but I mean, I wonder if pe- quite a few people didn't actually believe about the the 350 million on the bus, um, and that people who were concerned about the National Health Service really did think that the money there would be money for the National Health Service as a result of Brexit? Um. Um,
5: I, I, well, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's sort of empirically kind of hard to prove. My, my guess is that sort of having sort of spoken to quite a sort of lot of vote leave uh, people during the campaign, um, they thought there would be more money for the health, service, but they didn't actually think that all the 350 million would be kind of hypothecated straight to the health service. But they didn't care, I think. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, that's. I couldn't be kind of categorical, but that would be my impression. Mm -hmm.
4: The health service is actually one of the biggest examples of where truth, untruth and grey areas live on, because there are very few politicians who I think would ever grasp the nettle and say, we can't have what you want and say to the public grow up You're not going to have an A&E at the bottom of the garden. You're going to get better treatment if you go to a place where the surgeon or the the staff have been doing more, um, they've had more experience of that particular surgery or whatever it is. It's not a taxi service to have an ambulance. And no, you can't call an ambulance just because you've got a headache for the third day running. Until somebody's prepared to have that truthful conversation, and it's about treating the public, Um, as adults instead of as children. And I think I'm quite interested in Katerina's point about public discourse because who or where does that take place? Because if it is, and I don't mean this in a pejorative way, if it is just the public where there is no mediator, whether that's journalists, experts, politicians, whatever, um, then actually what happens is the crap that you get on Twitter which is, I think you think, I don't care Um, you know, but actually there is also this thing about it suits politicians and it certainly suited New Labour to a certain extent to become very patrician and don't worry, we'll make everything okay so maybe we have to be a bit more truthful in what we expect and the NHS is a very good example of that
1: Good. Well, I want to move us on to perhaps a slightly uh, more specific question about the role of the media uh, in all of this. It's great that we've got two journalists as well as two academics um, on the panel. Um, why don't we start perhaps with, with John um, on this one? What is the role of the media um,
5: in public discussion and how could we perhaps improve improve things? Um, I mean, I think we are... I mean. I mean, journalists do have their... I mean, are not above criticism. Because, I mean, most journalists are looking for politicians to fail. But, I mean, the story is in the failure where the um, the public discourse hasn't met up with what's the, the reality, if you like. And um, But, I mean, on the other hand, I mean without a journalist there's a whole lot of things that you would never discover and people would be able to get away with almost anything and um i mean we were talking earlier i was kind of very interested in the idea of the fact that people come into politics and they basically start off as sort of good people and and then they sort of become something else and I, th- I mean, I still think there is an element of truth in that. Um,
3: Obama and the drones.
5: Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, and it's but it's a sort of it's it was um, it was there was a great play I think called Closer, which was about how did sort of good Germans sort of turn a blind eye to Nazism in the sort of late 1930s, and it was a series of incremental little kind of compromises there's no one big compromise that takes place you compromise yourself bit by bit day by day really and um, I think that sort of you know as the higher you get up into government I mean the more you I, mean, I think your point about the health service is absolutely true I mean the basic story of the health service is that it's sort of unaffordable and we can't tell that particular truth um, it was designed in the late 40s when the average life expectancy was somewhere in the 70s in your 70s and um, the so people weren't going to need sort of 20 years worth of end of life care um, and you know the, you know and if you got cancer you were probably going to be dead in six months as opposed to sort of new very expensive treatments and you know, And no government has ever got into power by saying we're going to put up taxes. I mean, the Lib Dems tried it, so we'll put on 1p onto uh, uh, income tax for the health service. And, I mean, they got annihilated for that as well as for almost everything else, <laughs> really. Um, Joe, um, what about you? Um, how would
1: you see the role of the media, including social media?
4: Well, I think the media, the press, um, has a role in a civic society in delving into, examining, holding up to scrutiny, looking a bit further, maybe because that's our job and other people don't have time or the interest to do it. I think, you know, I have to hold my hands up here and say that as a an editor of um, political programmes there is nothing like the unalloyed joy you get of a politician making complete tit of themselves and I was the editor of the programme where we rather unkindly asked the newly appointed sports minister Richard Cable some quite complicated questions like who's the captain of the England cricket team which he didn't know Um, (laughs) but that's okay he's forgiven me so there is that sort of thing and there is a sort of a Faustian pact between journalists and particularly in the lobby I think which is the Westminster um, Parliamentary Correspondence. But there is a role for journalists. There isn't necessarily, and I, you know, I wasn't entirely facetious when I talked about citizen journalism being a tautology. You know, your opinion is as valid as mine, but do you have access to, do you know how to look for things? It's, and that's not, you know, it's a bit like saying to an academic, do you know how to research stuff? Do you know how to use the tools that are there? Do you know what questions to ask? Or are you just going to come out with an opinion? And because of the demise of particularly the newspaper industry and particularly local papers, I mean... I don't know about you, John, but when I started off in local papers, we used to go and sit and report coroner's um, cases and local council meetings, and they were as boring as hell. But, you know, they used to fill up 18 pages in the local paper and tell people what was going on. So where do you find that information now? And I think there is a sense of, I don't know where to look because I haven't been trained to look. Oh, I know. I'll see what Katerina thinks, or I'll see what Fred Bloggs thinks. So I think there's a very important role for journalism in sifting through and asking the questions on behalf of the public.
1: Good. William, how well,
6: would Well, you... that, that was, of course, what failed in the Brexit discussion, wasn't it? That Absolutely. these lies were simply not... Yeah. Um, you know, Exposed. somewhere there was somebody saying that this is a lie, but it didn't get the kind of coverage that it should have done. It didn't shoot down the lie uh, immediately. Um,
5: I mean, I I would go back to what you were saying about the select committees because I found um, during the referendum debate often the best, uh, the most fun to be had. I mean, as a sketch writer, I'm there to have fun as much as to inform, (laughs) um, was in the Treasury Select Committee because they went through the kind of economic uh, proposals of both the leave and uh, the remain camps. And they found them both to be absolutely ludicrous. I mean, the Leave, the leave uh, assertions were more ludicrous than the Remain. Um, but, I mean, the Treasury Select Committee was absolutely damning on you know, both sides. And, I mean, it got some reporting, but most people just ignored it really i mean so the stuff i think you know i think the information is there but it's a question of knowing where to find it and how and also when there is so much information knowing how to kind of differentiate between information that is sort of worthwhile and actually takes you somewhere and and information that is partial at best
6: Yes, I yeah. just wonder if it's right to say that, <clears throat> you know, that there were lies on both... I mean, there were bizarre claims on both sides, and the 4,128 or whatever it was, pounds, was obviously okay. ludicrous. Yeah. But, um, I mean, essentially what, what the Remain campaign was saying was this is rather dangerous. Uh, you know, all of these things might happen. Um, and, um, you know, when you go to the doctor who says, you know, it's not going to be good for your health if you carry on smoking 60 cigarettes a day and drinking a bottle of whiskey. You know, the, the doctor is not going to say you'll definitely be dead. With, you know, the month after next, but the, the, there is a serious danger. And I think that, that, that there was a sort of um, difference there.
5: Well, yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, there I mean, the was. But, I mean, I think it's a sort of bit like Googling your health symptoms. If you, if you, if you, if you Google something for long enough, you'll find it's fatal. Um, I don't, believe me, I've looked almost up every symptom I've ever had, and it's amazing I'm still alive. Um, but and I think the same with, you know... like They over-egged it, basically, the remain side. Uh, about the dangers, and I think people, you know, responded badly to that. <laughs> Katharina? Yeah,
3: so I just want to make, it's not exactly following up on, on what's been said, but I want to talk about social media specifically, and in relation to phenomena that have been known uh, to social psychologists and sociologists for a while, but which I think have been intensified with social media, and I'm thinking about group polarization and group think And also there's another idea of information cascades, right? So there's this idea in the ideal situations when uh, – so there's public discourse, there are arguments going here and there, and people are picking up on all this, and they're making their own decisions, right? So there's the idea that Peter and I were talking about – it's a technical term – epistemic autonomy – which sounds really nice and fancy, and it is. It's a very nice thing to have when you can. So the idea that you get to make up your mind for yourself, right? You, are, you have the evidence in front of you, you have arguments, you collect it all, and you make your own decision. That's kind of an ideal to aspire to. But what we see a lot in social media these days is actually something that's quite the opposite of that, right? So we have this phenomenon of group polarization that people they start talking about a particular issue and at first they're not that far off from each other and after discussing with each other they're even more far apart. And, and that's not supposed to happen with argumentation, right? You're supposed to kind of converge towards something, towards some consensus. And it seems that I think there's a sense in which really the, the, the new technologies that we have have in some senses intensified phenomena such as uh, group polarization and also group, th- group thing, right? So this idea of eco chambers. So, you know, your, your, your Facebook feed, you know, everybody who's posting things are all people who already agree with you. And so you're not really exposed, right? Because that, that's where, who your friends are, your Facebook contacts. So you're not really exposed to, to information that... Questions and challenges your own beliefs. So just, just you know, a small point on how it seems that in particular these new technologies may have, not that these phenomena have emerged now, they've been around, I mean the uh, group polarization has been studied since the 60s by social psychologists but now it seems that these new technologies have, give, make, make, have made these phenomena even more prominent, perhaps have exacerbated these phenomena. But the lack of challenge
4: and the lack of willingness to be challenged, whether you're a politician or you're a member of the public or whoever you are has become worse for exactly the reasons that you say, Katrina. because you just reinforce it because everybody says yeah she's brilliant have you seen what she said oh she's amazing she's fantastic and so you end up with equally bad untruths Um, you know whether it's somebody who said something at a conference who then loses their job and actually seven and a half weeks later it find you know we discover through journalism that that's not what was said at all nor what was meant because somebody had overreacted and it's so quick um, and the other thing is that social media feeds, and I know there's one going on right now because Beth is tweeting, or <laughs> maybe, I don't know, doing a shopping list, whatever. Um, um, cardo deliveries, marvellous. Um, but the other thing is that, uh, is that, um, is that people refuse to be in a position where their views are challenged. So, actually, you now have this ridiculous thing which is happening in a a lot of universities, particularly, is we don't want that person there because we don't agree with their views. We don't like that. It makes me feel uncomfortable. It's unsafe. Well, where are you going to have any sensible public debate on that and the other thing the final point on this is that the media because of increasing lack of resources and having to you know serve 89 masters and be quicker than everybody else is they are increasingly using the comments that come from social media instead of you know somebody half sensible so you know Peter's stuck in a traffic jam. It was a catastrophe. It was dreadful. It was carnage. No, it wasn't. You waited at you know the Dartford Tunnel for five minutes, but it just once upon a time you know you'd have sent out a reporter. You've got an eyewitness. You'd have got a vox pop. It would have been equally boring. You probably wouldn't have run it. But now you're published, and then you become a celebrity, and so you you know your opinion has less weight than it deserves. Not yours personally, but I mean
5: just one thing. I mean. I find it so sort of odd that I, I am now about to say something quite positive. Um, <laughs> it's not my normal style. Um, but I think you. that, uh, <laughs> that uh, I, mean, change, I mean, change can be affected. I mean, only last week I was at the Tory party conference and Amber Rudd was saying, talking about naming and shaming foreign nationals in sort of every firm. And because of the outcry both caused by both journalists and then public, They've rode back on that. They're trying to pretend it sort of never happened now. And, of course, we <laughs> never meant it, etc., etc. So, you know, I mean, they, you know, the governments do pay attention if, you know, they can do. And it, um, your, your opinion does count, I think. Yes. So, wouldn't
4: it be lovely if the government actually said, yeah, OK, we got it wrong. Big deal instead of having to deal with how do they answer the journalists who go, yeah. oh, it's a U-turn they've been forced into, which is yeah. what we
5: do. Yeah, no, I, I agree. But mm-hmm. Small steps. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Katharina.
3: No, no, I just wanted to say that there's a sense in which you might even think that Twitter, etc., that's actually democracy, the, the idea of democracy becoming concrete because everybody has a voice all of a sudden. But then we get into the situations that you're describing that people get too much of a voice because they, they're just they don't really know, you know, they don't have the epistemic authority. But do you, but do you want six hundred separate
4: people to make six hundred separate threats of rape yes, against an exactly. elected MP exactly.
3: that's not democracy so that's, that i want to be part yeah. of no so that's exactly the point so that it, which i think really reinforces my point that it's so fragile it's so it can go wrong so quickly and so the pathologies are always going to be you know Lurking in the background.
4: I blame the loss of green ink because once upon a time, (laughs) you knew when a letter arrived. When I used to work in the House of Commons, there used to be an old boy, you might remember him actually, John. He used to come and sit in the members' lobby. I think his name was Mr. Bennett, and he was about 400 years old in those days. And he had a briefcase like this, and he would just wait and see whoever because he had documentary evidence that the head of MI5 was a deep cover spy. And what's more, he had radio transmitters in his fillings. And here was the evidence. Now, we all just said, oh, hello, Mr. Bennett, how are you? a Cup of tea, what have you? Nobody took a blind bit of notice. Nowadays, he'd have published that on Twitter. But because it was on lined paper in greening with lots of capital letters and underlines, it was a warning. Don't take this seriously.
1: So one of the... Advantages, I suppose, of social media is that everybody can have a voice, everybody can exactly. be taken seriously. But, but there's all, also at the, the, same disadvantage, time, the disadvantage yeah. that everybody can have a voice and be taken okay. seriously. Well, speaking about everybody having a, vo- a voice and being taken seriously, we must bring in our um, audience. Um, please raise your hand if you've got a question or comment. Yeah, right at the front. Uh, if you just wait for the mic to come to you. You'll be on the podcast. Hi.
9: <laughs> um, okay, so my question has to do with the idea of truth that you guys mentioned earlier and then how, that, how the media plays with that. Um, so yes, I think nowadays a lot of people in the public relate the fact, or they assume, uh, wrongly so, that all politicians somewhat are lying about something. They, they assume that it's normal that politicians lie about things. So my question to you is, the me- at least for the U.S., which is, I, which is where I come from, Trump sure says things that are like crazy but it's a lot of like the media and how people watch the media that has been allowing them to really voice what, what you know what they're trying to get out there so my question for you is can the media shift the focus of people being like so fascinated by politicians lying to giving people what you know, that challenge that you guys are talking about because I feel like people are super into, you know, oh this politician's lying, oh that's entertaining, so that's what I'm gonna focus on. I'm I'm asking if journalists can actually shift that focus on that entertainment realm to actually changing public opinion on how they can actually help make a change in the right way.
1: Great. Okay, let's take a couple of questions in quick succession. We'll we'll come back uh, to that. Yeah, there's a gentleman uh, up here about halfway up on the left
8: in grey. Thank you. Um, My question is maybe try and find a way where, uh, on the one hand, social media and the inclusion of the broader public might be beneficial and where it wouldn't, and that would be uh, to look at how much skin those people have in the game, and if we come with national examples, I can give you a very nice example of skill in the game in Germany, an electoral campaign, uh, where a very um, sensible man stood up and asked a very articulate question to uh, our now Chancellor Angela Merkel, asking her why can't I and my partner, he was gay, why can't I and my partner have a child? And she did not have any idea how to respond to that, because it was such a sensible question, and this man had such an authority, because he was concerned, and he could really Convince everybody that he would make a good parent. So, um, I think maybe you can uh, elaborate a bit more on how much skin in the game could actually change uh, the impact of this cause.
1: Can you just clarify what you mean by skin yeah, in the game? Yeah.
8: How, how how directly you're concerned? For instance, a, a rape threat uh, that is published anonymously on uh, on on Twitter certainly way uh, it, certainly way more direct for the one who's threatened than for the one who's threatening. Uh, if women can uh, provide... So how much you've got a stake? Yeah, exactly. Yeah,
1: okay, great. Let's uh, have another question. Yeah, there's a lady uh, up here, um, just up, yeah, on the right.
9: Thank you so much. Um, I'd like to come back to the select committee in particular that you, Joe mentioned earlier, because as you were speaking, I was wondering is it really so much that the audience is not sufficiently interested, or is there, and I'm being sort of deliberately critical here, but is there a little bit of um, self-censorship involved as well? And the reason I'm asking this is because I felt that the um, report on Libya that was recently uh, brought up by the Foreign Affairs Select Committee was actually not sufficiently covered, given that... it. Stated that the government basically did not only not plan but also did very poorly during the decision-making process. Thank you.
1: Okay, good. Okay, well, we've got three questions on the table, so let's perhaps deal with uh, with those. The first question asked about the difference between trying to catch a politician in a lie and actually challenging their view. Uh, The second question was about politicians answering direct questions where somebody has got a particular... (laughs) Uh, thing at stake, and the third question, um, expressed a bit of scepticism about whether the the reason some things are not covered is um, whether there's some self censorship uh, by the media. So, who would like to jump in?
4: Can I just ask you? Let's just do a quick poll and ask people here: Where do you get your news from? Do you get stick your hands up if you read newspapers? Ooh, that's quite encouraging. Okay. Yeah. Online? Online? Yeah, (laughs) I'm going to go. Yeah. Television? Not so much. Radio? Okay. And can I just ask, do you read uh, newspapers? Do you read one newspaper or do you read a multiple? Put your hand up if you're promiscuous with your news intake. that's That's quite an encouraging...
1: That's good. We are at the LSE. You yeah,
4: yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> might get completely different answers somewhere else.
6: Yeah, I mean, just, just on that theme of the, the siloization of opinion, um, you know, as a consumer of, of print media, it was quite a shock. I mean, the, the week before the referendum, I happened to be flying a couple of times and was, you know, as a Guardian reader and occasional Financial Times or Le Monde, to be suddenly exposed to the kind of newspapers that you get in airports. Uh, given to free so I was suddenly looking for the first time for some time at uh, the Times the Daily Mail and so forth and you know this kind of sense of wow you know, look, what's, look what is actually coming out of the press uh, beyond the stuff that I'm actually looking at
4: Just on the point about the select committees and the coverage of it I mean the reason I asked about newspapers is because once upon a time, there used to be much more coverage of parliamentary proceedings. Um, there used to be you know, more Whitehall correspondents. There used to be industrial correspondents. I was one. There used to be much more detailed specialist knowledge and specialist coverage. But, of course, nowadays you've got the Parliament Channel which you can watch, but I think it goes back to the point that Katerina and I have both made, is actually you've got to know what it is you're looking for in order to be able to find it. So, you know, if you're interested in foreign affairs, do you need to then go through that House of Commons website and see when that Foreign Affairs Select Committee is sitting and whether it's discussing something of interest to you? And it is that thing about, you know, we've got so much information that quite often it's a lot easier to just go... I don't know, I just like looking at pictures of
3: cats. (laughs) So I have a point, but it's on the second question, so perhaps, is that okay? Good, yeah, go straight to that. So, yeah, so the point about, uh, well, the gay man who stood up, and said, "Why why can I not marry my partner and have children? So that, I think, goes back to a point I was making at the beginning, the human factor. In politics, which I think the Athenian ideal uh, uh, overlooks, disregards too much, and I think that so there are some stories of, say, very conservative politicians who then turn out turn out to have all of a sudden a child who turns to be gay, and then how they change, they change their views, they turn around completely because it's very different if you see it from up close what it is. So that's one of the things that I want to press on is just to really. Uh, Bring that in because it is part and parcel of the story from the start. And by having this the idealization that we should not, we should factor that out. We should look at the abstract level and what counts as justice, and make it as non-human uh, as possible and this is detached from human reality. I think that's a mistake. So it really is going to be, you know, politics is really about people and people's experiences. And then there's this, there's this notion of philosophy. you talk about situated knowledge. So people. Are Really are as knowers, they are a product of their place in society, of their experiences, and that's part and parcel of the story. And trying to kind of like put that under the rug is, I think, one of the ways in which things go wrong.
1: Good. So there's something intrinsic about public discussion which involves people with their own stories and personalities. Experiences. So somebody yes. Somebody always can put their hand up in a genuine sort of public discussion and say, "Well, what about my own?" sort of situation. William, I wonder whether you might be able to help us, actually, with the first question, this distinction between a journalist setting out to catch a politician in a lie and that would be a kind of dramatic thing that creates a news story and genuinely... Prom- prompting them to defend themselves or uh, advancing an objection towards their view? I mean, is there a kind of Habermasian sort of perspective here that would help us sort of pull these two apart? Um,
6: well, of course, I'm not a journalist, but it, it does seem to me that, that you get most out of people when you're, um, as it were, luring them into, you know, rather than starting off to say, you know, what do you... What, which, what was the worst lie you told today? <laughs> I didn't know you were going to get blocked off <laughs> fairly quickly. <laughs> well, <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> um, but I mean, the, the, that engaging with people, uh, you know, you can get them to dig themselves into a hole. Um, yeah. um, it's not a Habermasian answer, but it's, mm. I mean, it seems to me a practical one. Good. Well, I
5: mean, well, I mean, I don't. I mean, I'm, I've never been a kind of what you call a proper news reporter. I've always been a sort of feature, sort of satirist, sort of slightly on the outside as a sort of court jester. Um, not that mo- not that satire doesn't have a kind of moral purpose to it, because in a way, there are times, there were times during the coalition that I felt that a satire was the only thing that was holding the government to account, <laughs> basically. Um, but I think um, you know. We, I mean, there are different sort of levels of um, sort of undercover and luring people in. I mean, Channel 4, uh, a couple of years ago, um, sort of lured in and sort of posed as, uh, I think, sort of a Chinese delegate and sort of tried to, and went to both Jack Straw and Malcolm Rifkind. And... You know, and found out that for five grand a day, they were both prepared to sort of lobby quite hard on their behalf. And you know, would they have said that if Channel Four hadn't gone in and sort of posed? Almost certainly not. But was it public interest? I would say it was definitely public interest to know that um, two senior politicians can be bought at a price.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's the same as. The MPs' expenses scandal, that will live on and has done so much damage because... To go again to Katharina's point about, you know, the personal and the ordinary and the human, how the hell can you forget that you've cleared your mortgage? Because the day that most of us managed to do that, we'd go out and have a pint at least. But, you know, if you're an MP and a Labour MP at that, oh, I didn't notice. Well, you know, that doesn't ring true. Maybe if you've got two
5: or three mortgages. Well, that's true.
4: (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, that's even worse than not knowing the cost of a pint of milk. Um, which has always been the oh, let's catch them out, do they know? Do you know? No, I've got no Well, there idea you go, so. you see. <laughs> but we wouldn't hold you to account and say that's, you were an appalling yeah, person.
1: Yeah, mm. that's right. Uh, I suppose that does sort of shed some light on the dif- distinction between a journalist setting out to catch a politician in a lie. That looks like a rather different contribution to public discussion than um, exposing some sort of untruth for the sake of finding the truth of the matter? I think
4: there's a difference between trying to lay a banana skin and actually trying to get to the bottom of something where, you know, to go back to William's point, there was not sufficient challenge on either side of the Brexit argument. Um, when the Scottish referendum was in its sort of final throes, I was actually uh, doing the paper review on the BBC and the Heralds came through, and, which is a Scottish newspaper, the oldest newspaper in the world, um, and actually came out for independence, which was a very significant moment. Um, now the person that I was on with who's actually sitting here in the audience and I actually argued with the BBC saying this is really important we need to cover it and the editor at the BBC said well it's not Scotland (laughs) stick it in as an unfinal who cares, You know, here's a nice picture of Wayne Mooney or whatever but actually the point was that misunderstanding that misreading of how important and how close the Scottish referendum was going to be which then, of course, geared everybody up into thinking, crikey, it might go. Um, And, you know, we did the same
3: with the Brexit referendum because we didn't challenge enough. Yeah, but then I would say it's because, well, at least I'm prepared to defend the claim that there are some things that really should not be put up to referendum, precisely because they will elicit all these emotions that are not, that shouldn't be what's going to determine a decision on a very very serious very
5: so agree with you I, I would agree i mean it would be, if you were to put capital punishment up for exactly, referendum yeah. then we would win people <laughs> yeah. left right and center
3: should we ban abortion yes, yes. Yeah. you know all the man voting i mean Britain. <laughs>
1: I so agree. there I might agree. be certain subjects that we're incapable of having a public discussion about. That's
5: quite sad. Or I'm at
3: sure. least that cannot be. We can have a dis- pu- public discussion, but should not be put up to democratic vote. Right. That's yeah. the. That's I, mean, I mean,
5: we can be quite clear that the EU referendum. We the referendum was uh, put up to solve a dispute within the Tory party. It had nothing to do with actually asking the country mm. what they wanted.
4: And the, and the simple answer is to actually say. We can't put this up.
9: Because people don't understand.
4: No, because none of us understand. (laughs) Not not people don't understand. None of us understand. Civil servants, politicians. That's what I mean. Because it's it's very technical. But that's the point, is the difference between treating people as though they're stupid and then of course they will respond to Boris Johnson, Nigel Farage, Donald Trump, Jeremy Corbyn, whatever, because they think they're real and they think they're not being patronised. And going back to the you know, the original point, which it's about being truthful, which is none of us know the answer, so it's an effing stupid question. Yeah. It's like, uh, uh, is
3: there, you know, extraterrestrial life? Let's have a vote yeah. on this. Yeah.
4: Exactly. Yeah, Ask yeah, a different well, question. Maybe.
6: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think Bourdieu is actually very good on this. I mean, he, he wrote about the way in which people feel they can have an opinion on whether, you know, girls of 13 should have the pill or not. But people feel excluded from having an opinion on questions of foreign policy. And that kind of exclusion of the sense... you know In order to express your opinion, you have to feel that you have the right to express your opinion. And there are certain issues where people sort of back off, saying, you know, this is something that I can't get into.
4: And that's really difficult, because that way lies the end of democracy, because people Mm -hmm. are... You know, you're not far off. When I used to go out canvassing and knocking on doors, and people go oh, no, I'm not interested. Mm-hmm. And you say, what, you don't care where your kids go to school, you don't care where you, you know, what, you've got a roof over your head, whether your health service is free. Well, yeah, I care about those things. Well, of course you care. But, you know, you've actually, whether it's journalists to make it more accessible or whether it is for the general public, of which we are also all part, to make a bit more of an effort, I think is the real fundamental difference.
1: Well, on that constructive note, I think we ought to draw our discussion to a close. Thanks so much for uh, to all of our panel.